We are in this series called Luke, and we are in week 13. We're, we're studying the life of Jesus through the book of Luke. Luke wrote in the first century during the lifetimes of the disciples, but after Jesus was crucified, and he made it his business to record eyewitness testimony that he put down in a book so people would understand about the life of Jesus. So that's exactly what we're doing. We got into Luke chapter 8 last week. And there was a shift in Jesus' teaching ministry. Because he had been teaching. And more and more there was increasing opposition. From chapter 8 on. Jesus started incorporating parables more into his teaching, and he actually told a parable that sort of explained that, the parable of the soils. We looked at that last time. Now, Jesus is going to a different spot, and so this is the narrative taking us from that teaching. He crosses the lake. He does something else. But in these events that we're going to look at in the middle of Luke chapter 8, we're going to notice some things that we'll, we'll kind of structure it with. First of all, we're going to find out that Jesus has authority over the natural. Jesus has power and authority over the natural. Second, we're going to find out Jesus has power and authority over the supernatural. And third, we're going to find out that Jesus has power and authority over every one of us. So that's how it's going to go. Let's turn to the word or grab your device. Luke chapter 8, Jesus has authority over the natural. Beginning in verse 22. Now, in one of those days, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat, and he said to them, let's cross over to the other side of the lake. And so they launched out. Want to just stop there, make sure we have this right in our minds? A first century fishing boat is what Jesus would be talking about here. And actually, they've dug one up from the first century that they have on display on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. This boat is 27 feet long, it's seven and a half feet wide, and about a little over four feet deep. So that's, that's the boat. I don't know if you can see this. This is on display in a museum right there off the coast of the Sea of Galilee, but here they have on glass kind of how it would have looked like with the mast. It had four points for rows and a mast in the middle. So you could have four rowers and a mast. That's what a first century, that is a first century fishing boat. So that's what we mean by boat when we're talking about that. And continuing, but as they were sailing along, he fell asleep. And a, so Jesus is asleep. They're sailing the boat. And a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake. And so uh, a, a lot of people talk about the Sea of Galilee is actually the lowest freshwater lake in the world. It's 700 feet below sea level. And because of the geography around the lake, um, it's subject to sudden storms. Normally, the Sea of Galilee is calm, but every once in a while, there are storms. Now, I know some of you, because we live near Lake Erie, Lake Erie's way bigger than the Sea of Galilee. And so I know some of you guys, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, how bad can a storm be in a little lake like the Sea of Galilee that's only 13 miles long and seven miles wide? That's just not a very big lake. How could it be? Well, I have some video for you to show you how it can be 
on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. So this is a storm. This is what we're talking about. This is the kind of thing that they're in. This is footage from a storm uh, on the shore off the Sea of Galilee. And they're in this. And remember, as they're in this, some of the people are professional fishermen. I mean, at least four, at least four of the disciples, they're professional fishermen. They know their way around a boat. And like I say, it's usually calm, but they're in this storm. And then the verse continues, and it says, uh, but they began to be swamped and to be in danger. So all of a sudden, even though you got professional fishermen aboard and they're going across, this squall comes up. It's so serious that even the professionals are going, yeah, this is bad. We may not make it across. Th things are not going well. And that, that's the weird thing about being on a lake in a storm. Have any, so we're, we're near Lake Erie, so let me ask the question. Have you ever been on the lake in a storm where you had no control over the boat? Anybody being like that? Yeah, it's, it's, it's weird. It's scary. I mean, there's nothing you can do. I remember when I was about 10 years old, uh, my family went to Lake Powell. That's a lake out west in uh, Utah, mostly. It actually goes through more than one state. It's 180 miles long. It's a big lake just backed up in a bunch of canyons, barren canyons. And we would go there and we'd just camp and explore canyons on the shore. And we would never see anybody like the, the several days that we would be out there is how kind of remote it is. But we we're in this lake. We were in my grandfather's boat. It's an old wooden boat. And it had an old car engine, uh, an inboard, and, and it was just in rough shape. And it, so it was my mom and my dad, my, my mom did not swim, and my bro, me and my brothers, there's three of us, I was the oldest, and then my grandpa. So we're going, and we started, we had engine trouble, and we couldn't keep the engine running. It was like running just on two cylinders, and so it's just limping along. At the same time, this big storm came up, and first, you know, it just got kind of rocky, and then it got real choppy, and then all of a sudden, there's big waves, and then all of a sudden, the waves are cresting over. Now, we're just trying to make it to the nearest land, but when you're in a situation like that, you usually only can go one direction, right? And that's the direction the wind's throwing you. And so things got worse and worse, and then we, we were bailing. And then, you know, I, I know it was kind of serious when, when Dad said, all right, guys, get out the life jackets. All right, because Mom had a nice life jacket, and she wore it. She didn't swim. But the rest of us, we never wore the life, you know, it's not the way you're supposed to do it, but back in the day, we never wore them. And so we're reaching under seats and in crevices, you know, and pulling out these splintered, riddled, old canvas, bat, you know, those canvas, uh, what are those, Kent Type 2 or whatever, uh, life jackets. You know what I'm talking about? You know, with the little metal clips and they're all rusty and everything and we're sticking those on. It's like, oh man, oh, we're, we're really getting serious. So we get those things on and we're, we're doing that and they're wet and they're dirty and like I say, filled with splinters because of the boat. And then we're going and then all of a sudden the waves come up and they're crashing over and we're bailing as fast as we can, but we are losing. Anybody done that? You know, you're bailing, 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 but you're losing ground and you realize we're gonna be swamped. And then it got really real when my dad turned us, and this was a very small boat. I mean, the engine took up most of the interior room of the boat. And he turned around and said, this is when it got real. He said, in a calm but stern voice, Kevin, you got your youngest brother, Monty. Wade, my middle brother, do not try to save our pet dog, Snoop, 
forget that. I got your mom. Granddad can handle himself. When we go down, here's the plan. When we go under, you know, there's just nothing but brown cliffs. See over there, there is a thread of green. That means there's a little river there. We're gonna swim for that thread of green that you can see on the side of the, the cliffs. That's where we're gonna meet. Get to land and make your way over to that little creek. That's where we'll be because you won't, we're not gonna try to stay with each other. That's when it got serious. We were like, man, this is bad. You know, we're gonna be in the water. We're gonna be swimming for it. It's like a mile away, maybe mile and a half. You know, we're like, I, I, I don't know if we can do this. And our dog's gonna die. You know, that's what we're thinking. But it's weird how you lose all control. You're going under and, and, and the boat was running enough where it could kind of keep pointing us in the right direction. You know, and, but the wind's pushing us. It was just, it was messy. But, you know, we made it. But it is weird how sometimes you're in a situation like that and you realize, I have no control over what happens next. I mean, I know I have control how I respond to it, but I can't keep this boat from going down. It's just the way it is. And so that's how it was with the disciples. They know, these guys know what they're doing a lot more than me and my family did. These guys know what they're doing and they are getting ready to go down. Next verse. And they came up to Jesus. He's still sleeping. They came up to Jesus and they woke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he got up and rebuked the wind and the surging waves and they stopped and it became calm. So this is interesting. Jesus got up and he basically rebuked is like, he tells the wind stop and the waves stop. What's weird is he doesn't just tell the wind stop because winds stop and everything's gonna balance out. But it's the wind and the waves and because he told the waves to stop, there's instant calm. You know how it is normally in a storm, right? It's, it's, it's choppy, it's wavy, then the wind stops and then you know finally, slowly over time, it, this didn't happen that way. The wind stopped and the waves stopped, which resulted in the lake being perfectly calm like glass. You know, you skiers, you know, you want that smooth as glass. Get your water skis out, you know. That's what they experienced. And they knew, hey, they had been in storms before, no doubt. They had seen storms. All these men, as far as we know, are from the region of Galilee. Some of them were professional fishermen on, you know, they used boats every day of their life. And so here they are, except for the Sabbath. And here we are, and they're doing this, and it's like, we've, we've seen storms, but we've never seen anything like this before. And so they respond to that. They, they he said to them, and Jesus turns to them, he says, he said to them, where is your faith? Where is your faith? That's an interesting question to me. Where is your faith? He doesn't say, you gotta have faith. He says, where's your faith? It's almost like saying, you guys have the faith. You're just not using it. Where is it? Why isn't it kicking in? Why aren't you having faith? He's saying, and faith is trust. He's saying, where's your trust? Why aren't you trusting me? I'm right here with you. Although I was sleeping in a super rocky boat. Why didn't you trust me? 
And that's what he's asking them. He's saying, you, you should be able to rest, trust in my ability to take care of you in any situation. Where's your trust in me? And so that's the main teaching point of these events that's happening. And what it reminds us is for us today and for them to realize no matter what situation you're going through, whether it's a health scare or this or that or family issues or whatever or financial disaster, whatever it is, whatever's happening, whatever your circumstance, whatever life brings you, trust Jesus because he cares for you and he will deliver you through whatever storm you're going through. Now, he may deliver you from the storm, but he will at least deliver you through the storm. Either way, God loves you and trust Jesus because he wants what is best for you. Now, the problem with that is that we don't always know what's best for us. But notice their reaction. But they, the disciples, were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water? And they obey him. So the, the weird thing about this is they're afraid of the storm out there and they think they're gonna sink. They think the storm may kill them. Jesus deals with the storm and now all of a sudden they're not afraid of what's outside the boat. Now they're afraid of Jesus who's inside the boat because they can't figure this out. This doesn't make sense. Which is weird because four of these disciples had already experienced the miraculous catch a fish when he first called them, the four fishermen. And so that was a miracle, kind of an, a nature kind of miracle. But to them, this is something in a whole nother league. That the wind dies, the waves die, there's instant calm, that's impossible. How's that happening? And it's Jesus' divinity over nature that they're seeing. They're fearful and they're amazed. It's weird because we look at all this, we already get that Jesus is God. But the disciples weren't there yet. They were like, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the promised one that's coming. Jesus is the one we've been waiting for for hundreds of years that the prophets told us would come. They knew he was the Messiah, but they did not understand that he was God because God is one and God is holy and, and you can't see God. You know, so they're like, they're not computing that part of it. And so they're fearful, they're amazed, they're, they're trying to figure it out. Like today, when we realize that Jesus is God, that will cause problems for some people because they'll think like, okay, well, God, I follow you and you do have authority and power over the natural, over any circumstance that I'm going through. So God, why would you allow me to go through and then fill in the blank? Why would you allow it? You could just make it go away with a blink. 
if you love me, why would you allow me to go through this issue? Because I know you're strong enough and I know you care, but with those two things, I don't understand why you're letting me go through it. But here's the deal. If you believe in a God who's big enough and powerful enough to, take any, to control any situation in your life, and he's loving enough to want the best for you, if you believe in a God that can do that, you need to also recognize that there's a God who can have reasons for us going through trials that we can't understand. Does that make sense? Because he's bigger than us and he's smarter than us and he can know things that we can never know on this side of heaven. Trust God. God wants what's best for us. And so that's how that's going. Jesus, like, if you, if you knew how much I loved you, you'd stay, you'd stay calm. But uh, they're just, they're just kind of struggling with it all, just trying to figure it out, and they're just stunned. Of course, I'm sure that wears off at some point. You know, after the calm, and then they're in the boat, they still got to go, you know, to where they were heading, which is the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And so they're, you know, back to rowing or whatever. Well, there's no wind. They got to row now, you know, so here they go. And then after they were kind of stunned by what Jesus did, but they're right there with him and now everything seems normal again. You know, and, and there are a bunch of guys, like 12 men with Jesus, that's 13. You know, now you can see these guys, how, how the conversation's probably going. And it's probably like they're rowing and one's probably going, man, you look scared. <laughs> I look scared. You look terrified. You... You were freaking out. You were screaming like a little girl. You know, it's probably that going on. And then finally, they get to the shore. And then Jesus steps off. And now we see that Jesus doesn't only have the power and authority over the natural, but he has power and authority over the supernatural. So verse 26. And then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. Now, the country of the Gerasenes, this is um, on the other side of Galilee. All this land was given, by, was given to Israel by God. The country of the Gerasenes, that would be this year. They're actually heading for like a spot of land right about here. Actually, Gerg says it shows on this map. So they're coming here, but this whole area down here is the country that we're talking about the region of the Gerasenes. And then it was also known by another term, which is the Decapolis, which just means 10 cities. But the unique thing about this is even though this land was given to the Jewish people, this land is overrun with Gentiles. It's mainly Gentile Roman type people who live here. Gentiles who don't follow Yahweh, don't do all that. And we could tell by the way the rest of this story breaks out. So they go to the other side and then it continues to say this. And when he, meaning Jesus, stepped out onto the land, a man from the city met him who was possessed with demons. So you have a man possessed with demons. Now that's weird for us to hear because most of human history, there's not a lot of demonic activity. For example, in the Old Testament, I can only think one place where demons show up and then the word's not even used, and that would be in Genesis chapter six, the first couple of verses there, in Genesis 6, sons of God and the daughters of men. And, you know, that has some, impl- actually, that has some implications in this story, but we don't have time to get into that. But anyway, but now it's the New Testament, 
and the Messiah has come, God has come in flesh, and he begins his ministry, and now there's demonic activity everywhere. There's all kinds of stuff going on. So Jesus gets there. Uh, he, um, he's on, in this region. It's a Gentile region. And then when he stepped out onto the land, um, he sees these guys with demons. And then, so the demon he's describing and he had not put on clothing for a long time and was not living in a house, but among the tombs. You know, when you arrive to land and you're met by a demon or a man with a bunch of demons, that's bad, right? But if he's naked, that's even worse. I mean, it just takes another step down. So this man, he runs up and he runs toward him. And he's completely naked. Now, I've actually lived in the South. I, I lived in the South for almost 10 years. And they have two words. They have naked, but they have another word that's stronger, and that's naked. And so they have naked, that's a guy without clothes. But naked is a guy without clothes that's up to something. This guy is not just naked, he's naked. And so he comes running up, and, Jesus, and, and he starts interacting with Jesus, and then he's not living among the tombs. So he's living where the dead are. There's some actually cliffs in this region on the eastern side of the shores of the Sea of Galilee where they would typically limestone, where they would dig in there and they would make uh, tombs for people, which is kind of their preference, not always, but they like to do that. But then they would dig them out in advance, kind of what happened with Jesus's tomb. There's already a tomb there. So they'd have these tombs in waiting. Well, poor people would sometimes go and live there. weren't supposed to, but, and here this guy, he's got demons and he's antisocial and he's living in these tombs. And they've tried to control him. You know, he's broke the chains. He's, he's done all this. They, they can't control this guy. So then it continues like this. And seeing Jesus, this guy with the demons, he cried out and fell down before Jesus. So he, he falls down before Jesus. Now, the King James says he worshiped Jesus, but that's because these words are very similar. He's not worshiping Jesus. He's falling down before Jesus because Jesus is superior to him, Jesus, son of God. And said with a loud voice, what business do you have with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? The demons know exactly who Jesus is, even though the disciples don't. I beg you, do not torment me. So these demons, they know who Jesus is. They're yelling, you know, all this is happening and they seem as they're calling Jesus, they're screaming out, you know, these demons through this man, Jesus, son of the most high God. And he, they, they answer the question that the disciples had about Jesus after Jesus calmed the storm. Who, who is this guy? This is who he is, son of the most high God. And there's a difference between knowing truth and submitting truth. You know, we all probably know people who would say they're believers, say they always believed, but they don't follow God with their life, right? There's a difference between knowing the truth and actually incorporating truth into your life and following the truth to do what God says. So it continues in verse 29. For he had already commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had seized him many times. And then he kind of talks about the demon's the demon-possessed man's history. And he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would break the restraints and be driven by the demon into the desert. 
And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion. And, and legion is a military term for Rome at the time, which would mean 6,000, but sometimes only, you know, it could be as small as two or 3,000. And he said, legion, because many demons had entered him. And they were begging him not to command them to go away into the abyss. So the demons, through the man, they throw themselves. He's a naked guy, runs up screaming, throws himself down, screams, what do you have to do with us, Jesus, son of the most high God? And then he's there, and then he's asking, hey, do not, do not throw us into the abyss. I'm about to get on a rabbit trail, so I'm, gonna try to, I'm looking at the clock, so I'm trying not to do this. So the abyss is a place of confinement mentioned in Revelation 9, Revelation 20, but also, you know how I mentioned that demons kind of show up one time even without using the word in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 6? Well, they all got confined to a place, which is actually referred to in the New Testament in Jude 6 and 2 Peter 2.4 as Tartarus or a place of confinement where they will not be released. And so these demons know that they know their eschatology, which is study in times. They know what's gonna happen to them. They know that they are bound for the abyss, the abyss and that that's coming and it's a place of confinement. But they know it's not time. As a matter of fact, one of the other gospel writers, I think it's Matthew, says they say, do not send us to the abyss before our time. So they know that's coming but they're doing everything against Jesus they can do now while they still have freedom, and they're begging, don't send us into the confinement, the abyss, now, is what they're saying. And then it continues. Now there were a herd of many pigs feeding there on the mountain, and the demons begged him to permit them to enter the pigs. And he gave them permission. Now, enter the pigs, back, enter the pigs. I, I wanna stop there. This is the only time in the Bible where demons have entered into animals. And I only wanted to point that out because I don't want you like two weeks from now and your dog's acting really, really weird and not doing what you said and you're going, man, I wonder. Not probably not. Of course, if you have a cat, you're thinking that all the time. But, you know, so only time that we know of that demons ever entered an animal. So let me get that right. All right. And the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. And so the pigs, they rush down and you know, they're dead, they go into the lake, they're destroyed. And, and a lot of people ask, well, why did that happen? Well, demons only live to destroy life. They want to destroy us. They want us to be in hell. They want to destroy us or in opposition to God and they're rebelled against him and will always be that way. They know their eternal destiny and they want the same for us, to be separated from God forever. Other people will ask, well, this was a herd of pigs. And we find out from Matthew, it's a herd of about 2,000 pigs, a lot of pigs. And so people say, well, how did Jesus permit that? Because then, you know, somebody lost a lot of money there and that wasn't Jesus' You know, we, what, what, why all that? And there's a couple of reasons. First of all, 
I think Jesus allowed the demons to go into the pigs so people could see that the demons were destroyed or the demons were gone rather than they just leave the man and nobody knows when they're coming back or how long this is going to last or is this guy going to revert back at any moment? You know, I can't trust this guy. Who knows what's going to happen? No, they go into the, de- the, the pigs and the pigs go into the sea and that's sort of the end of them. I think it helps people think that way. But there's kind of another issue and that is back when I was talking about the region of the Gerasenes, is remember that should have been a, a Jewish issue, but, it, but a Jewish area, but it had been taken over by Gentiles in these 10 cities of the Decapolis. And so that's why they have herd of pigs. Jews were not allowed to eat pigs, right? They weren't allowed to even touch an unclean animal like a pig. So that's why no Jewish people would be here, let alone the tombs. And so it, it's almost like Jesus cleansed the man of the demons, and he cleanses the land of the unclean animals. You know, but, but here's another thing. Now, so that was true that they couldn't eat unclean animals, but that all, so some of you might have some questions. Well, what about us today? Well, that all changed in Acts chapter 10. Do you remember? Peter is praying to God. He's, he's going to end up meeting some Gentile people, and the mission's mainly been to the to the Jewish people, he's praying to God, remember this? And he sees a sheet from heaven, something like a sheet, with all kinds of animals in it. And then a voice from heaven says, rise up, kill, and eat. And, and Peter says, no, Lord, I've never eaten an unclean animal. I've followed the law. You know, I would never do that. Never have I done it, we'll never do it. Then it happens again. And then it happens a third time. So in Acts 10, we have this biblical mandate. Rise, kill, eat. Guys, you're gonna wanna remember that. If you wanna know why I go elk hunting, because of the biblical mandate, rise, kill, eat. Now I only have a third of the mandate down under my belt. I'm really having trouble with the second and third parts of the mandate. But the point is, hey, it's right there. That's why, that's what's going on. And now... Jesus has gotten rid of these unclean animals. And so that's, that's what's happening. Now it kind of continues. The pigs are dead, verse 34. Now when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported everything in the city and in the country. And the people came out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had, been, had gone out sitting down at the feet of Jesus clothed and in his right mind, and they became frightened. Now, this in his right mind, they come and they find this man. He's got clothes on. We appreciate that. And he's sitting down at the feet of Jesus. But this this language means something in the first century more than it does today. In the first century, they would have recognized that is the posture of a disciple to a rabbi. You sit at the feet of your rabbi. The weird thing is, is even though this man's sitting at the feet of Jesus, you know, Jesus is a rabbi that has followers like nobody else. I mean, think of the 12. You got fishermen, you got a tax collector, you got a zealot, you know, and then, and then we see others. I mean, you have a man who, who's desperate for his child. You have a woman who needs healed. You have a woman, you know, a sinful woman washing Jesus' feet. 
The people sitting at the feet of Jesus are not what anyone expected. The people at the feet of Jesus as a rabbi were people just like us who weren't qualified to sit at the feet of another rabbi because Jesus invited all of us. Just like I wouldn't have been qualified to sit at the feet of another rabbi in the first, test, in the first century, but Jesus invites all, all of us to come and to learn from him. So it continues. It says, uh, those who had seen everything reported to them how the man who had been demon-possessed had been made well. And all of the people of the territory of the Gerasenes and the surrounding region asked him, talking about Jesus, to leave. Ask him to leave them because they were overwhelmed by great fear. So now this is different, right? Everywhere else Jesus ministers, everybody's trying to get to Jesus. You can't get to Jesus because of all the crowds. Jesus is in a house, you can't get in there, can't even look in there. People everywhere, thousands of people sometimes. People, you know, just following him everywhere. But Jesus is in this area and they're like, hey, we need you to go. Why? What's going on? Great fear. Great fear. In the Greek, this is mega fear. What's happening? Hey, they feared. We, we know from Luke and from the other gospel writers, Matthew and Mark, we know that they feared the man with all the demons. And they actually tried to control him. There's actually another man kind of in the shadows, a secondary man who is also demon-possessed in the same area. But they tried to control this guy. They tried to subdue him. They tried to chain him up. They tried to, you know, keep him confined. And they couldn't. This man was too powerful with all the demons, too powerful for them. And now all of a sudden they come, and they all know the man. He's wanted, you know, the number one on the wanted poster. He's you know, most wanted. They all know what he looks like. They avoid, we're, we're told in some of the other things, that people avoided traveling in this region because of this guy. And now he's sitting at the feet of Jesus. And now their fear of the man, which they respected him and feared him, but they fear Jesus way more. It's just like the thing with the boat. The disciples feared the storm, but when Jesus calmed it, they feared Jesus. Not the storm anymore. Now we're going, who can do that? These people feared the demon-possessed guy. But when Jesus healed this man, they realized we couldn't control that guy with all the demons. There's no way. And here is Jesus. He didn't just subdue him. This guy's sitting there clothed in his right mind, learning from him. And they recognize that Jesus has power way, way more than these demons, than this man, than all that, that they look at Jesus with great mega fear because they know they could never control him. And Jesus already, there's already been some economic loss and Jesus is there and, and they see what's happened. As much as they were afraid of the guy, they're afraid of Jesus even more. And so, Jesus does what they say. He leaves. And he got into a boat and returned. Returned where? To the other side of the Jordan. Jesus doesn't force himself 
on us. They ask him to leave their region. They left. Their hearts were hard, just like what we talked about that in the story that Jesus just told, the parable. And Jesus leaves. He has authority over the natural. Jesus has authority and power over the supernatural. But Jesus also has authority and power over us, even if we don't want to admit it. He does. But here's the thing. Jesus still, even though he has authority and power over us, human beings, all human beings, he allows us the autonomy and free will that he gave us, the freedom that he gave us. He will not violate our free choices. And so when the people see the previously demon-possessed man sitting at the feet, you know, they're, they're, they're looking at that going, wow. And they realize, hey, they were fearful of Jesus. And the story continues, verse 38, what happened next is the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home. Again, something we don't normally see. This man, he's sitting at the feet of Jesus. We don't know exactly what Jesus was teaching him before all this comes out, before all the country kind of gathers the region and find out what's happening and they see all this. But then the man says, oh, you guys are heading to the other side of the lake. I want to come with you. And Jesus says, no. Return to your home. Here's, here's what's happening here. The people of the region, the, the whole region there, the Gerasenes, they have rejected Jesus, except for this man, the formerly demon-possessed guy. But Jesus hasn't rejected the people. Jesus still has a heart for the people, and he gives this man a job to do, and we see that next. Return to your home and describe what great things God has done for you. Here's your assignment. You stay here. Go to your people and describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away proclaiming throughout the city what great things Jesus had done for him. Notice that? Theos, Yasu, he's saying, Yeshua, Jesus, Yeshua, he's saying, hey, this man, God and Jesus, same person. The demons know it. This formerly demon-possessed man knows it. Who's having trouble with this? The disciples, they're the ones going, hey, we know he's the Messiah. God in flesh, they're not there yet. So people of the region rejected Jesus, but Jesus didn't reject them, and he sends this man to minister them, to tell them, to convince them, to sway them. Jesus has authority over the natural, everything that's happening in your life. And he has power over that, and he could change it if he wanted to. Trust him. Jesus has authority over the supernatural. Demons are stronger than people. They're fallen angels. You know, when they followed Lucifer, who was, you know, a powerful angel, wanted to exalt himself before God. 
And when he fell, apparently from Scripture, a third of the angels went with him. And they're opposed to God. But they're more powerful than people because they've lived all through, each of them have lived through all through human history. But Jesus has authority over the supernatural. And Jesus has authority over us. And we need to submit to that authority. We could know that. We can say, yeah, I've believed in Jesus all my life. But until we make a decision to follow him, to acknowledge our sin, understand that Jesus' death is the only thing that takes away our sin, that we don't have to experience righteous judgment from God. It's only then that we're saved from that. And so the question is, have you come to a place in your life where you have put your faith in Jesus, knowing that you've sinned and deserve punishment, just like me, eternity in hell is what I deserve, and no good thing can erase one sin. No good thing I do can take away one sin. But Jesus, who's perfect and had no sins, can pay for my sins. And even though the punishment for my sin is eternal, it's from, na- it's from when I die on, that's what I deserve, separation from God and torment, Jesus, eternal God, can pay that through his voluntary death on the cross in a moment of time because he's eternal God. And so have you come to a place where you've admitted your sin and turned to Christ in repentance, wanting to follow him, putting your trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation? And if you haven't done that, there's no better time today No better time than right now. No better time than today. Put your trust in him. He created you. He loves you. But he will not violate your free will to bring you into his kingdom while you're rejecting him. Submit to him. I'm going to close in prayer. We're a little long, so let's stand together. Father God, we thank you for who you are. Lord, we thank you for the ministry of Jesus 2,000 years ago and the, the repercussions and implications it has for us today. And Father, those of us who have admitted our sin and made a decision to follow you because we put our trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for our salvation that he died for us to pay for our sins. Lord, help us to follow you more closely. Help us to recognize and live, have faith, have trust, because we know you have power over the natural, the supernatural, and all of us. And Father, for our friends and neighbors, people we know who are here, co-workers, standing with us in this room that haven't got there yet, Father, we pray that you would pull them, draw them to yourself, help them to see what's right and true and just. Help them to submit to your authority over their lives. Ask you to come into their heart and to live with them. And Lord, help them to understand that there's no better time than today. No better time. Lord, help them. If they have questions, Lord, help them to get the answers. Lord, thanks for loving us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thanks for being here. See you next Sunday. Men, next Sunday night, 10 o'clock, 18 and over. Got to be 18 before graduation. See you then. You're dismissed.